All right. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we're going to introduce you to our guest. We have the one, the only, Mr. Michael J. Allen. Can you introduce yourself to uh, to the listeners? Uh Yes, sir. I'm Michael J. Allen, Star-Lord, financial coach and science fiction and fantasy author, you know, full spectrum, side to side. So how does one become a Star-Lord? Is there an application process? There is an application process. So this is a this is one of those things where I just kind of let my 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 geek my geek flag loose. Um, I was uh, browsing along Facebook and I saw this ad for buying land in Scotland to give myself a title of Lord. Well, obviously I figured that one was a scam, but I did research it and there are actual nature preserves where you can go and you can buy a section of land in Scotland and you get a Lord's Lordship title. So having already seen that you can register a star in anybody's name you wanted, I registered a star under my author name and then I registered a Lordship under my author name and now I'm a star Lord. I dig it. All right. So there's a two prong process. It, it, it's weird, it's quirky, but hey, it, it made me giggle, and that's all that really matters. So now, would the uh, the royalty of of Scotland recognize your title as valid, or is it just a, a gimmick? Well, it, it comes with an actual lordship title and plaque. Um, I've been meaning to get it framed with the star certificate, too. Um, I've got it all, all sitting in a, in a pile. How real is it? It probably is pretty real. But for my purposes, who cares? I mean, yeah, I've seen the, the commercials. I've seen the commercials where like they give it to people uh, as birthday presents, and I've seen the same one for like you can buy a star. Exactly. I'm not. I'm not sure how long your your certificate to the star will hold up once we can colonize things. Uh, luckily, cool. mines are really far far away. I don't. I don't think we'll get there. But I'll be long dead unless you know I will it. Can you will a star? Uh, I mean, Doesn't if it's matter. real property, I imagine you can. Your 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 offspring are going to get the uh, the will, and they're like, "I inherited a star. What the heck am I going to do with this?" And then it'll languish away for generations, and then they'll be like, oh, "He was a genius." Well, you know, you you're registering the name of the star. I don't know that you're actually registering ownership, but since I've got it named after me, I, I might you know find a lawyer and see if I can write up a claim to it and any planets that happen to be in its orbit. Uh, it, you know, it, it'll be 200 years before we find out whether the claim even holds up, but that's pretty knows? funny. If I had to kind of throw away money, I totally do that. Well, all right. Know, so, you know, um, go ahead. I was gonna say, if we have any lawyers in the fan base, you should reach out and tell us whether this thing is even possible. And if so, how much you would charge. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Either way for the foreseeable future, I get to call myself a star Lord. Not I a star it. lord, but a, but a star, comma, lord, or star hyphen lord, either way. There's We're an editor out there. The the and oh. now you're a lord of the stars since you're the lord of that star. Why well, Would you well, need two again, of them then to technically so you could be plural? Yeah, you, you would. And, and again, I'm not sure that the star registry comes for ownership. But there is a star, Michael J. Allen. And there is a certified lordship title under Michael Jalen. So that's a star. That's a lord. And I'm an author. So, oh, and a coach. It works anyway. for me. 
and I'm sure all of the uh, fantasy people listening who are like super into heraldry and all that are are like having coronaries in the corner about how we've messed everything up. But it's okay. You can comment on it in the sections when this goes live. So since this is the Blasters and Blades podcast, we couldn't let you escape without the religion question. So this time uh, we decided to, to go back to our roots, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Stargate. Well, for that question, with those choices, I'd have to say agnostic. So say we all. Ah, BSG uh, aficionado. Okay. So uh, the original or the remake? Uh, really both. Um, really both. I, I started, I cut my teeth on the original. Um, Dirk Benedict uh, is, is my favorite Starbuck. He's also my favorite face man. I basically wanted to be him or Han Solo as a kid. So... Definitely, the original has has a has a, a special place in my heart. Though when I watched it again, it didn't have a special place in my head. <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, because we're polytheistic here at the Blasters and Blades podcast, uh, Aragon, Dragonheart, or Pete's Dragon? I, I went with a dragon theme. If you've noticed, I did notice, and and it's a kind of a tough choice. Um, because I once misspelled Aragon in a dedication to an autograph to Christopher Paolini. And of course, Dragonheart was, was the, the spawn point for one of my earliest series. But I'm going to have to go with Pete's Dragon because when I was younger, I played Lampy on a stage production. Wow. Okay. I didn't know you were a man of the stage. So, so you support the Bard, I see. Well, I, I like the Bard's Tower. I mean, that's a lot of fun. Uh, the <laughs> Bard, maybe not so much. Um, I don't have as much time to, to, to read that stuff. And of course, that was back when, when I was a kid before I realized I was supposed to grow up. So I did everything I could get my hands on back then. Wait, wait we're supposed to grow up? Where was this in the manual? Yeah, well, you know, it's a societal thing. And, and generally, I like to live in my own world. It's, it's much more comfortable. Understood. Understood. So uh, we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast like both the fantastical and the scientific. So which was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? I'm going to go with fantasy. I'm going to go. Well, yeah, I'm going to go with fantasy. Uh, the, the, the book that really started me was Roger Zelazny's Amber series, um, okay. which is kind of an urban fantasy and kind of a little sci-fi at the same time. So it just depends on how you want to look at it. That's, that's why it's such a hard choice. So what was your first memory of speculative fiction? Was it uh, Roger's uh, Amber series or was it a game? Oh, yeah. TV, anything? Oh, no. It was definitely it was definitely the Amber series. Uh, my uncle, who was a really kooky, kind of crazy guy, started me on reading very young. And, and because he had you know no children of his own, he didn't know how to actually pick books for a kid. So I ended up with the Amber series pretty young. Uh, after that, he gave me Hitchhiker's Guide. So we're clearly a man of to- means. Yes, from from, the, from there we, we went into Xanth and Dragonlance, so I, I guess I'm I'm kind of dual channel. Did you ever read the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, that's the only thing I could get in the town I grew up in. I, um, I like the, the, the library. Uh... The library only had things that were like eighty years old, um, so I did end up reading some, you know, Purnell and, and Asimov and Heinlein and, and and some of that stuff. But I mean. It was a tiny little 3,000 populous town. 
Okay, so small. But if you had a Walmart, you know you were in the, in the money. Yeah, there wasn't a Walmart. Oh. The, there was one fast food place, Kentucky Fried Chicken. That was it. <laughs> I, I hear you don't even get on the, the roadmaps if you don't have a Walmart. Well, no Walmarts. Um, I, think the, I think the biggest brand they had other than the KFC was a Safeway. Wow. Okay. So you had nothing to do but read. So, so uh, what is it you love about speculative fiction as a genre? Uh, the, the thing that I love the most, the thing that really drives me in, in both science fiction and fantasy is the ability to create wondrous worlds while sugarcoating real topics. I mean, for the whole history of science fiction and fantasy, you've had stories that deal with real social topics that are very important, but they deal with them in a way that you don't even realize you're getting them. I mean, my, my favorite part of being a writer is, is knowing that sooner or later, somebody, somebody's going to go, yeah, it wasn't fair what they did to those Elowin. It just it was horrible. And then he's going to be walking down the street and go, that son of a bitch taught me something. Sorry, language. Oh, it's okay. Uh, we normally say worse. But So how did your love of speculative fiction translation into you writing stories in this space? Oh, um, I just, I was always a storyteller and I didn't realize it. Honestly, I kind of fell into it. Just, I was in, in my early days, uh, I did some drawing. Uh, I used to sketch, uh, but my mother decided that all the sketches were demon possessed. So she burned them because the, the eyes followed her through the room or something like that. Uh, but at one point, um, I was staying up on a, on a New Year's Eve and I was watching Willow. On Good VHS, movie. on VHS. So, at one point, I had to rewind the tape to fix the tracking. So while that was going on, I I, I sketched this crossroads with a, a little young wizard and a little young ranger and a little young knight. Um, and then I went back to watching my movie. About halfway through, I had to do the tracking thing again. So I sketched again, but I made them older. Through the rest of the the movie Willow, I just kept looking at the two sketches. And then when Willow was over, I wrote six chapters. Nice. It's a good movie. That actually um, irked my college uh, creative writing professor because they were teaching us about Chekhov's gun. And they're like, you can't have the sword and or the gun on the wall and not use it. I'm like, well, in Willow, they had the expert swordsman who never handled a sword. So I, I guess that rule can be broken quite well and make you money. Of course, whenever you talk well, you to a creative the... writing teacher about money, it's like, oh, that's that's horrible. Yeah, well, they he did eventually use the sword. But it was pretty late in the movie. I had forgotten that part when I challenged the teacher. It's a good thing they hadn't seen the movie. <laughs> so many authors um, let their – go ahead. No, go ahead. Let's I was going to say many creative writing, writing teachers um, have a unique view of creative writing. Indeed. I still learned, so that was the, the point of the class. Um, so many authors let their own real-life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? <laughs> um, gosh, yeah. Um, I was homeless for a while, kicked out of kicked out of my father's house at Shotgun Point. Um, That's a story uh, you could write someday. Uh, it, I, I could, I could, and he's long dead, so there won't be any libel issues. Libel. Right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there. Uh, 
time on the submarine doing that nuclear reactor thing. There's, there's plenty of good stories there. Um, though generally what I find is I find that the, there are seeds of my life in the stories, but not stories themselves. Fair enough. So uh, speaking of life experience, you, you did mention that you served in the U.S. Navy. So we ask all of our authors who are also veterans this question, but how do you feel like your time floating around the oceans uh, affects the stories you tell? Uh, excellently. Uh, uh, my original goal is, as a very um, optimistic young man was to bridge from submarine nuclear duty into nuclear officer school to bridge into NASA so I could design space stations. None of that actually happened, but I know an awful lot about living in small pressurized containers. <laughs> so Fair. my science fiction is pretty good. <laughs> Fair. So did the air smell funny when you lived in those pressurized uh, tubes? At first, but after a while, you didn't notice it. Yeah, I, I don't do well with confined spaces. There's a reason I went in, in infantry. There was always plenty of blue sky for us or gray when well, it was raining on us. <laughs> I, I was never claustrophobic until after they stuck me in a 35-foot tube under the turbine generators moving 8-inch cables down the entire length and racking them inside this triangular cubby hole and i got stuck oh that would now do I'm it a little, now i'm a little leery of, of tight spaces I, I don't think i'm really truly claustrophobic but uh when i think back and and remember those situations uh, yeah i'm like not good not good but at the same time that particular situation did make it into a book nice nice um yeah, I don't, I don't think I could have done that, but someone had to, so more power to you. I, I irked my recruiter when I went in to the take the ASVAB because they're like, oh, your ASVAB score is so high. You should be a nuke in the Navy. And I'm like, I don't like going underwater. So I stayed infantry, and I couldn't swim well, very no, well. You had missile cruisers and carriers that were also nuke um, in the Navy. But, you know, I, I did really well on the ASVAB. And Marines wanted me for like a weapons lab or something. The Navy wanted me for nukes. Uh, the Army wanted to put a weapon in my hand. And the Air Force, who probably would have been my first choice, wouldn't talk to me at all. I didn't even talk to anybody but the Army and the Marine Corps because I knew I wanted infantry. And then when they got to the MEP station and the whoever was running the MEPs for that, that period saw my ASVAB and they're like, are you sure we can't talk you into something better? That's a that's too high of an ASVAB score for a grunt. And I'm like, nope, that's what I want. So it was a it's definitely an interesting experience. The people you meet and the jobs they try to foist on you. Oh yeah. Sometimes it's like, do you even know me at all? But anyway, so we've talked a little bit about you, the fact that you were in the Navy. But when you write your stories, do you ever draw on the characters, the people that you knew while you served? Yes. Names are changed to protect the uh, innocent, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and sometimes uh, real life characters get combined. Um, because, you know, while there were some characters on those submarines, um, some of them didn't really seem like whole people. Like if you put them in a book, they wouldn't be whole enough for the reader to buy it, even though they were whole people in real life. Yeah, I've learned that. Oftentimes, fiction is uh, the the reality is stranger than what people expect or will accept from fiction. I've written yeah. sometimes where I wrote situations that literally happened to me, and the editor was like, "No one's going to believe this. Take it out." 
Like, well, it actually yeah. happened to me. Nope, I don't care. Take it out. I'm like, okay. So it's it's one of those things that always surprises me <laughs> how, how uh, crazy reality can be. But well, uh, we have we have we have standards for our fiction. We're not they're not allowed to be that weird. Indeed. So we've you mentioned how your time in the Navy affects the stories as you tell them, but how does your time in the service affect the the way you engage with content as a as a reader, viewer, consumer? Okay. So I read a lot in the Navy too. Obviously, you you, you go out, you you go underwater. There's not much to do other than the man the reactor and the maintenance. There was a series, um, and I can't remember for the life of me the the writer's name. But it was called the Sword and the Chain series, and it was about a series of college kids that are suckered into a D&D game and then suckered into the world that they were playing in the D&D because their dungeon master was, in fact, an exiled wizard from that world. Well, I was reading this series, and I was really getting into it, and then he did something that emotionally impacted me drastically. So much so that I actually flushed all three books that I'd already bought. I'm only like in book two or so um, off the ship. Uh, and we won't talk about how that works. Then later, when I realized I should be writing, I actually decided that I need to go back and reread the Sword in the Chain series to figure out how he managed to create such a visceral emotional response. Because that's our job, is to create emotion in the reader so that they're part of the world, so that they can be part of um, creating the world with us. Okay, it's uh, it's by Joel Rosenberg. I did a quick Google, uh, and it does look interesting. But I can I can see by the cover uh, that it looks like it might be a little dark and, and grim. Dark was that a fair assessment? Yeah, it was. It was very dark. It it was very dark. All right. But of well, course, re- you know, as a twenty-something-year-old, I didn't care until I got to the point where I did. Fair enough. So, transitioning away from the writing side, let's talk about things from a fan angle. So, have you gotten any cool cosplay or fan art since you started writing? I have. Um, I actually dedicated the third in the Cyan Rising series, third book that is, to my very first cosplayer. Um, so he cosplayed Alaric at a Scion Rising, which is the main character. And, and that was just super, super awesome. He, he went and got one of those 3D statues made of himself at Dragon Con. Um, and so I, I got him to get me the digital of that so I could see it. And ironically, he's a writer now. Um, and, and technically, I guess one of my protégés or one of the younger writers that I'm helping get, get forward. Um, he's getting a lot of help these days because he's he's made friends with a bunch of others because I've had him helping me out on booths at conventions, learning how to sell and, you know, helping with his writing. And, and now, you know, he's, you know, one day he was walking around in, in the outfit for Alaric and next day he's trying to get published. Nice, nice. So before we move on, I did talk to me about this 3D model you can get of yourself at DragonCon. Okay, so apparently you can go stand in this booth, and I've seen the booth a couple times in the vendor hall, and they will make a 3D model, a 3D rendering of you and your cosplay, and then they can print it. Science is amazing, and the future is now. I dig it. All right. It, it, it is cool. Um, I, I don't know that I'd ever cosplay any of my people because 
I'm too big for that. But yeah, I don't. I don't have the body for that. Uh, maybe I could do the maternity characters. I don't know. I pulled that off. Pregnant woman. But uh, that is still kind of neat. So you do have the leg for it. <laughs> Has anyone ever asked you for your autograph uh, while you're out in public? Uh, yes. Um, I, I still don't know why they want it, but but I do do a lot of book signing. So. Okay. Um, what was the first time you got somebody requested that? Was did they meet you at a con? Was it through your email? What was that experience? That was a good story. So it was my very first printing of my first run of hardbacks of my very first published book. It was the original Scion of Conquered Earth cover. And the person who got the book who asked for my very first autograph was Brandon Sanderson. Because as I had taken his classes, um, he wanted to take the book and put it on his student shelf, which is pretty awesome. So now you took the classes at BYU or you just watched the online? Like what, what level was I I just, I just watched the online, but you know, I I'd also sat in, in panels and asked good questions because that was back when I was still in up and coming. Um, And I just wanted to thank him. And I mean, how do you thank somebody like that? I figured here, this is what I created because you helped teach me. Um, And he was so cool about it. Um, And I'm like I said, uh, that that cover, which I'm a little embarrassed by now, and that editing version, again, a little embarrassed by now since it was one of my first, um, is supposed to be on his student shelf with my very first autograph. And, and that is just too awesome. Too awesome for words. That is uh, completes the circle kind of moment. So, all right. So this is the part of the interview, Mr. Anderson. Uh, Anderson. Allen. I don't know why I put Anderson. Well, um, there's, see, I'm wearing blue, so it can't be the matrix, right? Cause there's no blue in the matrix. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, I blame Seska cause she's not here to defend herself, but, uh, this okay. is the part Michael J. Allen. See, I get it right. Finally, the coffee is on the screen. In. I know I can read sort of, uh, but can you tell us, uh, the reader's digest version of your, your body of works? Why? Yes, I can. Jr. Michael J. Allen is an eclectic madman who has two urban fantasy series, one of them finished, a space opera series, a 19th century alternate history epic fantasy series, a modern high fantasy series. When He's hoping to one day grow up, ditch the eye patch, and hopefully have three brand new book contracts by the end of next week. I can dig it. So if you're going to ditch the eye patch, you should go for Jordy LaForge's uh, visor. That well, would be totally um, cool. My 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 eye patch is medical. Um, it, I that this eye has been poked and cut on and lasered repeatedly. And what the real jip is, besides the pain, is that they they stuck nitrous oxide inside my eyeball, and I didn't get the powers from Turbo, and they shot all those lasers in, and I still can't shoot lasers out. I mean, really, come on. <laughs> Well, then you just got to get the skull and crossbones on the patch and wear the hat and just rock the pirate look. So it, it let's be honest. You can tell us now that you're a civilian, you're not in the Navy anymore. It's because of the nuclear reactors, right? It made your eyeball glow. And it was like, dead, oh, we can't let that secret out. So they took it away. No, and it only glue, glue, started glowing after they broke it. It's oh, like a shake thing. All right. Well, I was, I was shooting for a cool story, but reality ruined it for me. <laughs> All right, so today 
Did we talk uh, about we, reality at all? <laughs> sometimes, maybe. I, I try to live there at least until the bills are paid, and then I can go back to La La Land. Um, <clears throat> so today we'll be conducting a, well, I was going to say brief episode, but I blew that one out of the water already. So we're going to interview uh, Mr. Allen about his contribution to the undervalued world of short content. Uh, so this time we have Starflight, Tales from the Starport Lounge Anthology on deck. And uh, one of the reasons I thought of him for this is because he actually has a story in one of my anthologies. So I know he writes good stuff. Uh, so when Marissa and Declan Finn reached out about this anthology and I saw his name on the list, I knew it had to happen. So let me read you the description of the story. Uh, Starflight, Tales from the Starport Lounge Anthology, and you will see yet again, dear listener, why I will never be the movie trailer voice guy. But <clears throat> 17 incredible authors, 17 amazing stories, one fantastic science fiction universe where the only limit is one's imagination. Welcome to Starflight. Based on the exploration-based Starflight video game series created by Greg Johnson and the Binary Stars, a uh, Binary Systems team, the stories in Tales from the Starport Lounge flesh out and shine light into the darkest corners of the known universe. Join the last vestiges of humanity and their alien allies, the reptilian Thryn, the insectoid Velox, and the plant-based Elowin. As they attempt to carve out their own territory in the sector of space filled with wondrous opportunities and deadly threats, brave explorers seek out new worlds to colonize while merchants cruise from starport to starport, their holds laden with exotic goods. Maybe even they paid for some of them. Not all in this futuristic setting have noble intent. For every prospector and trader attempting to make a difference, a dozen pirates, smugglers, and mobsters engage in all manner of criminal enterprises. Gangs fill the underbellies of every major city and raid the the trade routes between the stars, pushing the outnumbered and outgunned interstellar police to their limits and forcing civilians to take matters into their own hands. It's a rough and tumble universe out there, folks, where one wrong move could spell doom for the expedition or grant you enough wealth to buy a planet. So board your ship and set courses for the stars unknown. The universe awaits. I ad-libbed a little bit. I do that sometimes. Uh, if you don't mm. like it, uh, Mr. Greg Johnson, you can contact Seska at podcast.com. One of these days, I'll, I'll even give her a real email just so we can get the hate mail, but that won't be today. It's too much work. So uh, in, this, in this vast collection of stories, all 17 of them, um, what was your story called? Rover Rescue. So what was the basic synopsis of the story? Obviously, keeping in mind that you don't want spoilers because we want people to buy the book. Well, that's fair. But there are a lot of good stories in there. So if I spoil mine, it wouldn't be that big a deal. But still, um, actually, I think there's a Robert Silverberg story in there, too. Um, it was an awesome story. Either way. So Rover Rescue is about a homeless engineering type that manages to get himself on a ship and out with a captain. And then because he's overly ambitious and trying to prove himself, he ends up running the captain's rover out of power, which then creates a really weird situation that gets him fired and indebted to the harbor master at the shipyard uh, because the captain sold the debt over to the harbor master. From there, this up and coming engineer, as it will, wants to prove that he wasn't wrong. So he goes out of his way to go back and get a rover that he that he's told can't be gotten again has to be abandoned, that it's, it's, it's lost. 
Um, and he knows for a fact that that rover's cargo was absolutely full with extremely valuable minerals. So from there, you, you add in a low-life money dealer, um, a <laughs> xenobiologist cat woman with, with a collection fetish, and then a cobbled-together android with multiple personalities on lease from, how do I say this, a mad cyborg preacher. The best kind of preachers are the mad ones. Yes. Well, um, as actually, there's a funny story behind that, but I'll, but I'll leave that for later. Uh, so, so, what was the what was the inspiration for this story? Well, I played Starflight when it first came out, um, and I loved the game. It was it was the first space science fiction sandbox game where you could do anything you wanted. You could build up your ship and train your crew and go from planet to planet and, and pick up animals and, and creatures or, or just pick up minerals. And honestly, it was awesome. And I probably blew myself up. I can't even tell you how many times because instead of following the plot along, I just wanted to go out there and, and, and be my own version of, of Battlestar or Enterprise or, or, you know, Buck Rogers. And at the same time, there was one really, really, really frustrating part to the game. When you went onto a planet, you had to disembark your starship on a terrain rover. Now, the terrain rover had only so much energy in it. So you'd, you'd tootle around and you'd use your scanners and, and you'd collect minerals or whatever. But if for whatever reason you didn't, you didn't check the weather right, you, you were overly ambitious trying to get an extra um, cell of minerals, you could run out of power. So the rover would run out of power and then you would have 10 kilo kilometers worth of reserve power to get to the ship. Even if that last one kilometers worth of reserve power dropped you directly on top of your starship, you lost the rover, completely gone. Everything in it vanished. You, it didn't matter that you were already on your starship. It didn't matter if you knew the coordinates to try and land and come back and get the resources. Nothing could be gotten out of the rover except a particular artifact. Well, I explained it. Not only was it really, really exciting to be able to work in a universe that I love so much as a teen and to help expand the canon on it, but I got to finally solve the question on why you lost the rover and why it didn't have any cargo left in it when you got to it again. So that made telling that story a lot of fun. Um, and it's the story's not over. Uh, the, the story from the anthology is just the beginning of, of um, CT's story. So so do you guys have permission to carry your stories on forward? Will it be a standalone yep. novel or another collection of short stories? Um, I've been greenlit to go ahead and start writing um, essentially a trilogy in the Starflight universe with CT's adventures. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, right now I'm looking for the time to do so. <laughs> like I said, uh, I'm hoping to, to pick up three contracts in the next two weeks. Nice. So was everyone that has a short story in this collection already a huge fan of the game or did it just happenstance that you were when they offered? Um, well, I, not everyone even played the game that much. I do know. Um, in my case, somebody posted a picture of the old cover of the original game, and I saw it and just kind of gushed on it and fanboyed on it. And uh, they go, wait, we know you. You want to come write for this? And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me in. 
Ooh, you got lucky then. Okay, it's one of those right time, right place, super fanboy moments for you. Absolutely. So normally we would ask you if this fits into a larger universe, because we do have somewhat of a template we use for our short story interviews, but we already know that it does. So what is it that drew you to the to the Starflight universe when you first said, I'm going to give it a shot? You described playing it and what you liked about it, but what was it that first made you say, I'm game to try? Well, back in 1986, there weren't a lot of really good computer games. Um, and this one was... Uh, put out in association with Electronic Arts. It had this absolutely crazy cool ship, very much similar to the one on the cover that, that we're displaying, um, sweeping through space in front of a planet. Honestly, that was enough. I mean, let's be honest. My first movie out in the theater was Star Wars on its first release. So, I, I mean, I was, I was, I was a sci-fi nut from the moment I could, I could pretty much say sci-fi nut. Um, you know, Han Solo and, and, and Luke Skywalker and, and Jedi and then Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica. And uh, yeah, it was just it was all me. And when the, the original cover came out and I saw the game, I was like, I want it. Here's my here's my lawnmower money. Take it. I'm going home with it. It would help if I unmute myself. So in case anybody isn't as familiar with the larger universe as you, uh, could you give us a, a Reader's Digest version? Is it just a generic open world or was there lore and themes? And Actually, there was a lot. Um, it was it was made by, I want to see five, but it might be six um, kind of sci-fi nut developers that, that, that on, the, on the inside of the cover, you could see them in kind of a mission control cockpit thing. Um, but so... Arth, which is the, the, the original planet, is having a problem with its star. Um, Earth has long been abandoned and forgotten, but the star is about to go to supernova. Nobody understands why. And there's this huge plot for you to figure out what's going on because multiple systems have their stars going supernova and wiping out all, all, um, all life in them. In addition to that, you've got your, your own little explorer class that you can upgrade as you, you got. You've got your crew that you can train. Every time you come into the starport, you can go over to the starport lounge and, and open up the bulletin boards, and you'll see things like some guy telling the other guy that he wants his money uh, and to meet at this planet at this time and, and all these little story bits that are everywhere. There's actually a spot in the universe where you can run into a ship that looks awfully lot, a lot like the Enterprise. The original 1701, no letters. Um, the, the thing was full of Easter eggs and, and different types of creatures. You had the Speemen, which were these, these slug-type creatures that just were, they were worms. They were cowards. But unless you talked to them like they were the greatest gods in existence, they pretty much attacked right away. Unless, of course, you got a reputation for blowing up their ships, in which case they changed their tune. Um there were cyborgs, there were robots, there were alien ancients, there were ruins, there were creatures on every planet of different sizes and types and oozes and, and carnivores and dinosaurs. And, and honestly, even though it was 8-bit, maybe it wasn't even 8-bit graphics, but I mean, even though it was low-end graphics, it, it was a, a space explorer at heart's delight. That sounds... I did mention that I grew up wanting to to design space stations, right? I mean, 
No, no, absolutely. It sounds sounds fun. Are they going to be bringing back the game? Is that partly why they did this anthology? Or well, games one and two are available on GOG.com for I think it's two dollars for both games. Um, but they're looking at putting three together. So bringing out three. So we're working with the original developers and the original content owners, um, and we're kind of priming the pump for the universe. So that they can get enough, you know, I guess, the equivalent of Kickstarter funding to do what they've been wanting to do, and that is finish up the plot line for this story that they wrote back in the 80s. So in the original game, did you solve the, the missing stars? Yes. Yes, you did. Would it be a and spoiler to tell us? Well, I mean, the game came out in 1986. So would it be a spoiler? Probably not. Um, so there was a fuel crystal called Endurium that was very, very valuable. And you would find anytime you found an ancient ruin. Um, well, at least one that hadn't been pillaged yet. And Endurium was the most valuable resource in the game. And it was absolutely required for the space drives to allow you to fly around. What you learn through the course of the game is the Endurium is actually the ancient, an ancient race of aliens that moves so slowly we can't see them move. And since we were burning them up in our, in our engines, they were a little irritated about it. So they decided to wipe out all non-Endorium, um, all non-ancient life. I mean, fair, I guess. If I was getting burned alive, I might have something to say about it. Yeah, it's kind of fair. I get, I get it. Now, <laughs> when it comes down to the end, um, you have to choose whether or not to destroy their civilization or not. So what did you personally choose? I never got that far. <laughs> like okay. I said, I kept blowing myself up. You know, the universe kept blowing up around me because I was just wandering around as, you know, what, a 13, 14 year old collecting Endurium, collecting minerals, building up my ship, fighting with things, exploring. You know, I, I wasn't that interested in the plot, which is ironic now that I think about it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could see where the irony of that would be. So um, in case anyone hasn't read, wait, no, we already asked that one. Uh, so <laughs> so it was for whatever reason it repeated on my notes. So if... Um, Most organized podcast ever. I know, I, I get a medal for this every time. So do you have to be intimately familiar with the universe to enjoy... Uh, this this collection, or can you jump in cold? Oh, I think you can jump in cold. Uh, I know on many of the stories that I that I've read, um, we we did the the proper introduction. You know, the kind of introduction that you get in like a book two, just in case somebody jumps in on the second book and misses the first, where you reintroduce the characters and redescribe the aliens and redescribe the ships. Um, we all did a pretty good job of that. I'm, I'm sure we some of us missed a little here and there, but. We, between all of us, we described the world, and really, we expand the world um, and did a really good job of filling in a lot of the blanks. Um, and to the point where, I mean, I'm enjoying reading my copy just because I'm learning new stuff about a world I love. Okay. That sounds interesting. Is it in um, audio as well as um, hardback, paperback, and ebook? Um, it's in hardback, paperback, ebook. Audio is coming. 
Um, I don't know where the publisher is with the audio. Um, there was talk of trying to, to recruit Jeffrey Combs of sci-fi fame to do the audio. Um, I certainly love that personally. Um, but, you know, who knows? Okay. Um, so for your short story, what subgenre would you, you say that it fits into? I know just from talking to Marissa, and we've interviewed her already, and that's live uh, as of this recording, that the story scope of the anthology pretty much hits the spectrum of sci-fi. But what was your specific story? I'm definitely space opera. I'm definitely space opera. So what is it about space opera that appeals to you? Character. I mean, that's that's the core of space opera, right? It's, it's about characters and character interactions and, and how they, they interact with the world. I don't want to spoil too much about about my particular characters, but uh, they're an interesting group. So because you've mentioned that you're reading, this is just some ad hoc, so sorry you didn't get to prepare for this, but you did mention you're reading the other stories in the collection. And a lot of times as authors, you're busy people, we're busy people. So I might be in a collection I've never read the other stories in. That's not uncommon. It but you're, you're already breaking the mold, so you are reading those stories. So do you have a favorite so far? Ooh, tough one. Um, the Silverberg story, which is actually was published way back when originally was a really good story. Um, of course, he's a really good writer too. Honestly, it's a toss up between, between Chris Woods and Dave Butler. Um, Some good company to keep. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've read, I've, I've read work by obviously Dave Butler. His witchy eye is just a gorgeously written Jacksonian epic fantasy. And I, I love his other work as well. Uh, Woods also, I've read a bunch of his stuff that, that I really enjoy. Uh, I'm going to say I like Dave's just a hair better than Chris. I'm sure where it'll never get back to him. It'll be okay. That's fine. I'll tell him. <laughs> He's Dave like, I'll tell him to his face. It's fine. Dave beat him out by a whole hair. I mean, that's going to upset him. I listed him in the top three stories in the book. True, true. So, you know, we like to close these uh, these fun interviews about anthologies and short content with, with a fun question for the road. So, if you could live in this world, the Starflight universe, would you? Oh, yeah. But I'd probably blow myself up. So, so what class would you play if you were if you were living it for real? I guess you wouldn't be playing, but what class kind of role would you pick in the world if you were going out to do it? Um, I would be CT. I'd be an engineer. Um, I always gravitate to engineers. So the crew has basically six positions. You have captain, and then you have communication, science, medical, navigation, and engineering. And and so you can have one person in each one of those people, or you can have overlaps plus the guy who's in charge. So I'd basically be in charge and do engineering. So is there any like uh, space Marine infantry ground combat kind of roles in this game, or was it all space flight? Not in the game. No. Um, because you were either in your ship or you were in the train vehicle, which does have weapons, but you never got down to the soldiers. Now in the stories, um, we now have, Marine types, security, uh, security officers, people with guns, people with flamethrowers. That's well, they're high tech flamethrowers, but you get my point. Would so, Elon Musk you know, approve of these flamethrowers? I don't, I don't know, but yogurt would. The kids love it. 
Uh, I don't know if you remember, he he did as a gimmick, he made a flamethrower that he sold a while back. I, I didn't. Um, I actually, if if you're digging around my website, um, down in, in the lower menu, so a lot a lot of the stuff that's there is Delirious Scribbles, the, the store, Delirious Scribbles, the blog, whatever. But down in the bottom, you can find Delirious Scribbles, the flamethrower. It's always sold out, but, it, but it's a great thing. It's a pop-up that I had built. Um some for some art off of uh, Shutterstock, and I just had to have it. And now you had a reason to justify it, and I want your flamethrower, and I hate you for it. But uh, <laughs> so, was the Interstellar Police was that part of the original game, or was this a creation you guys added? No, no, it was part of the original game. Honestly, it was a really interesting way to handle copyright protection. So, what happened is, anytime you left the starport, you had to put, you had to enter in a code. But the code was based upon a three-disc cardboard wheel with slots cut into it that you had to rotate around. So the interstellar police would show up when you're trying to leave. And if you gave them the wrong code, they'd start hunting you. And if you gave them the wrong code too many times, they'd destroy you. So that way you had to get the, the code from buying it legitimately? Exactly. That's genius, so even actually. Even if you copied the five and a quarter low density floppy disks that this game was on, you couldn't you couldn't keep playing it without the code wheel. Nice, nice, and that probably took a little bit more effort to uh, to make. Uh, so I... th there were a number of people that sold uh, eventually, like in the nineties, once eBay actually became a thing, um, sold you know cardstock versions of it that they cut out and cut the holes and. And everything else um, because I got one of those at one point because I still own the game on, on the five and a quarters. And as an IT guy, I had five and a quarter disc drives I could access. So one day I just decided I wanted to play it and I needed the code wheel because mine had been, it was in a bottom of a trunk that got wet in storage. Fair enough. Fair enough. I didn't, That's... I didn't feel bad buying their copy because I actually own the game. Oh, absolutely. I, I get where you're coming from. That's, that's interesting. I, I like that. So that's that's creative. I, I wouldn't have thought that that would have been as big of a deal back then for digital content, but I guess this sort of makes sense. Well, back in those days, they were kind of pioneering how do we keep our stuff safe? Um, and and my father installed this. I forget what the thing was called, but it was a it was a long cord card that went into the computer that would crack any copyright and let you make copies of the disks. Um, and it was guaranteed for life, which is stupid because the hardware didn't last. I mean, that computer version didn't last. That if he ever ran into a game that he couldn't crack, they'd give him an upgraded card. Um, I don't particularly agree with stealing IP, but um, you know that was my father and I was a kid. So what are you gonna do? Absolutely, that's still that's still interesting that they would build that in and it built it into the lore in a way that didn't feel gimmicky. I, I really like that. Well, you know, there were other games that did similar things um, where you had to have the manual and be able to, to, to look up the story on page 42 and line three and, and word six to give codes. Um, was it Heroes Quest that had something similar to that? I'm pretty sure it did. Or, so want to be a hero. So was this game one player or was it interactive? I don't remember how no. robust oh, no. the internet this, was back then. The internet didn't exist back then. Um, not at all. Uh, we had bulletin boards. That's it. 
Uh, that, that's about as much as you could, you could ask. There were no networks outside your house. Matter of fact, for most houses, there were no networks in your house. I don't, I think 10 base two networking and token ring started mid eighties, but shoot that, that was a, the computer we had was an AT&T 6300 with dual five and a quarter low density drives maxed out at 640 K of memory and no hard drive. There was, and that was a $7,000 computer. Wow. So yeah, no networks, no internet. Back when you had to I'm sacrifice old. robots for, uh, for access to the internet. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and that they, is the they, real reason to for that. And that is the real reason Skynet will, will rise and try to overtake us. It's because they're mad at all the souls we sacrificed. Yep, that, that's fair. You know, AOL and, and their and their three and a half inch disc. And their rush for quest for power. They just they started something they couldn't undo. But anyway, before I ramble incessantly, and I've been known to do that, can you tell us, Michael J. Allen? And I'm saying that so people can scribble this down if they want to look you up, but how can listeners find you? Uh the easiest way, deliriousscribbles.com. Uh, if you go out to the website, all the links for everything else is there, including my Discord server, where you can come and chat with other readers, and you can ask me questions, and you can find out what I'm writing on. Um, I even do you know, AMAs on occasion. So I've got the counting room. I, also, the website um, recruits for my writer teams, my A-team, um, which, you know, if you want to be on the inside of stories, I don't know an author out there that doesn't like having – Readers and their A-teams. Okay. And you can find us, dear listener, on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tacky and tack blades anchor.fm backslash blasters tacky and tack blades you can follow us on twitter at sf underscore fantasy underscore show sierra foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show you can email us the real email address is blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com again that's blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com and i promise we do check the email Elvis agrees. And uh, we have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen. Facebook.com backslash groups backslash Blasters and Blades podcast. If you notice the theme, Blasters and Blades podcast. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Leave a note in the comment section when you share that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep the co-hosts duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Or you can support us on a reoccurring basis over at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. And for those who are supporting us at the moment, we appreciate it with your kind support. Since we started this back in February of this year, we have officially paid for the software editing program and maybe next year. Cause that's a one-time fee. Maybe by next year, we'll actually cover the Streamyards uh, fee, but uh, all of the support is generously appreciated. And so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for Nick Garber and Doc Seska. I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And as a gentle reminder, all the links will be in the show notes. So check us out.